So the title of this episode likely tells you a lot about what you need to know. That this first episode of the Equity Gap podcast is a sort of calling in to the white people in my circles of influence and any white person listening to this on how to engage, do the work, and walk the walk. With anything you'll come to expect from this platform, it's not designed for comfort. The work of dismantling the system of white supremacy is about challenging power structures that have kept equity-deserving groups from advancing and living up to our fullest potential. And it really requires raw, straight, and honest conversations to evoke some of that change. Many of us have a lot of unlearning to do around equity. So what I share on this platform is meant to challenge, and it will likely cause discomfort, but ideally it will make you think. First, some necessary context. I started this podcast because I've struggled as an equity and inclusion professional to bridge the gap between the ideologies of how to practice this work and inspire people to lean into actionable change. I see two ends of a very nuanced and dynamic spectrum that are often not met in the middle. On the one end, people treat kindness as a cure for racist systems, Systems that are so deeply rooted in nearly everything we encounter, almost to the extent of going undetected by the naked eye. And this simply glosses over the realities of what most equity-deserving people work through. On the other end, there is a frustration, a boiling point, and a well-deserved anger on the part of marginalized people that often alienates and ultimately shames white people who mostly, in effect, play only one part of the solution, which is factually beyond individual influence from a systems level. I want to bridge that gap to help those in positions of influence to understand their privilege and how to really do the work to advance equity, all while centering those of us living with marginalized identities. And in this episode, we'll unpack a few things and ways in which you, as a white person, regardless of your influence or your power or your socioeconomic status, can be a meaningful ally to particularly Black, Indigenous, and women of color in your lives and in your workplaces. And before we proceed, I think a quick note on privilege, and specifically white privilege, is really important. I love this definition of privilege by John Amici because it lays the groundwork for what we're talking about today. He says that privilege is a hard concept for people to understand because normally when we talk of privilege, we think of immediate unearned riches and tangible benefits for anyone who has it. But white privilege, and indeed all privilege, is about the absence of inconvenience the absence of an impediment or a challenge. As such, when you have it, you really don't notice it. But when it's absent, it affects everything you do. I just want you to let that sink in for a moment. Affects everything you do. Racism and our systems that are designed to uphold white supremacy are inescapable. And I hope by the end of this episode that your eyes will be opened a little bit more 
and you won't be able to unsee how it affects everything. And that it spurs you into action and into self-reflection. I've also spent the last four years building the Color Gap podcast, a career strategy podcast, which focused on the foundational idea that there was no one size fits all approach for career planning for those of us from equity deserving groups, how we find purpose, how we advance in our careers and make impact just look really different from those of our white counterparts. We have limited representation. We don't often come from strong circles of influence. We deal with racism and microaggressions on a regular basis. And our race and gender walk into the room before we are really ever really seen. Lean in doesn't work for us and never actually really has. And when I started the Color Gap podcast, one of the first episodes, my then podcast partner and still very dear friend, Susie Ko and I started talking about was around exploring the possibilities of sharing our experiences more widely in general. And we had a level setting conversation with ourselves to ask if anyone would even pay attention, even really hear us. We were gaslighting ourselves so much based on all of the gaslighting we've experienced over and over again in our careers. And we actually ended up dedicating an entire episode to unpacking the question we kept asking ourselves, are we crazy? And were our experiences and those of the Black, Indigenous, and racialized people in our communities and circles of influence, were those experiences all in our heads? I can't begin to count the number of times I've sat around with friends and family talking about our experiences in the workplace and in general Canadian context society in hushed tones, knowing what we all know, because when you're used to being the other, an outsider, you're used to having your culture, your race, religion, and your gender lamblasted in various ways in pop culture, in media, and often more insidiously in the workplace, you know racism and oppression all too well. And you know that fragility around these types of difficult, uncomfortable conversations, as people like to call them, that that fragility exists. Most often with people who are in the highest positions of power, and you know you aren't often safe to speak your truth. We often found ourselves seeking data and proof of our experiences for white people to believe what we knew with our own hearts, what we had experienced, and what we knew in our minds. And we have rarely ever been met with humble acceptance and accountability. At the time that Susie and I were doing that episode and starting the color gap, we didn't have the agency or even feel the right to lay blame on this problematic assumption that our experiences were merely perceptions of reality and not reality itself to lay blame on something outside of ourselves. We internalized so much of that shame and there's a lot of reasons for that. And I can only speak firsthand to the experiences of being first-generation Canadian, South Asian, and a Muslim woman who isn't so visibly Muslim. But I can speak to the ways in which I've been taught to stay quiet, to stay out of the spotlight, to not have an opinion, and to settle into the model minority stereotype 
I can also speak to my own experiences of working in the corporate world for over 17 years and the ways in which I've had so many leaders, so many white leaders who have failed me over and over and over again in their surface attempts at allyship. I can also tell you about the time I almost got fired for talking about white supremacy on the Color Gap podcast by an anonymous person with a very vicious agenda. But would you believe me? Would you have to ask for evidence for the data to prove my lived experience? Would you hear my story and tell me that it wasn't as bad as I'm making it up to be? Because so many of us have had to do that. And part of what I want to do today in this conversation is talk to you about the impact beyond what might have been your good intentions, how it makes us feel and how significantly it damages the efforts we're all doing to create a more equitable world. And I start with this topic of allyship in this very real and raw way because it's foundational building. And I am tired of all of the surface level conversations that happen around this dialogue. Without understanding the performances that so many Black, Indigenous, and women of color must put on to get heard and understood, we simply won't get very far together. I need you to believe us. I ask you to suspend judgment, to step out of the need for us to prove experiences, and for you to tap into that same energy many of you gave the Me Too movement to believe Black, Indigenous, and women of color, and believe us when we tell you our experiences are not in our heads. I ask you to not start a game of oppression Olympics, to compare your pain and life tragedies to that of racism and the daily inequities that Black, Indigenous, and women of color face simply for existing and for having the desire to take up space in the world. And it's really beyond individual experiences to something bigger and more pervasive. It's not about victimhood, but rather about calling out a collective experience that marginalized people live with every single day. And it doesn't take much to Google residential schools, missing and murdered Indigenous women and Two-Spirit people, to find countless stories of Black trauma in this country that also has a past rooted in slavery, to know that a big part of the pain that so many marginalized people feel is rooted in being seen as disposable, and that our systems are designed to favor one racialized group over another, to pit us against each other. There's this very interesting concept that I think kind of helps to paint the picture even further about the work that is put in to really get people to give a shit. It's what is called the economy of trauma. It was a term that was coined in an episode of the Maintenance Phase podcast, a podcast that I am wholly obsessed with to the point of subscribing to their Patreon. And it's one that really does an amazing job of debunking diet culture and anti-fatness. And in that episode, co-host Aubrey Gordon speaks to this concept of the economy of trauma as it relates to anti-fat bias. She goes on to say that it's actually not enough currently for 
fat people to just say, hey, this hurts me and I wish you would stop. There are too many people who just won't take our word for it or will say, well, then you should just have lost weight or you shouldn't have gained it in the first place or whatever. That it's extremely unforgiving. That the only way I have found to write that is through both data and research. But again, I know as an organizer that data and research isn't what changes people's minds. It helps, but that's just not how our brains are wired. Our brains are wired to pay attention to other people's stories. And when I heard this, immediately I could connect the dots. The same concept too easily applies to Black, Indigenous, and racialized people in that we must use our stories, pain, and trauma to build empathy. If there wasn't a video in 2020 of George Floyd being brutally murdered at the hands of a police officer, would anything have been changed? If you didn't see it with your own eyes, you didn't see that man's trauma calling out for his mother, calling out to breathe, would anything have changed? Our stories spur some people into action while others use it to weaponize the things that we literally cannot change about how we experience the world. And what's more is that when people hear our stories, often we're only worth believing if we fit your idea of what is acceptable. If we assimilate into some digestible version that isn't based on the stereotypical idea of what our people can be at our worst or what is expected of our people to fit the narrative that you have in mind. And I personally oscillate between niceness and upholding the model minority myth to being very deep in my feelings and amplifying my voice to the extent that it sometimes gets me in trouble and more often than not has other racialized women pulling me aside, telling me that they're grateful for what they see as my courage. When I'm the quiet, submissive model minority, I tend to create comfort for those around me that expect me to say and to be exactly that. Yet I suppress the thoughts and opinions that call for me internally to speak out and to make change. When I'm opinionated and what I like to call a bit spicy, I find myself in situations where white people and marginalized people who internalize racism get uncomfortable at times to the point of attempting to cancel me. And most other times where I get tone policed in a way that wouldn't be done to a white man with a well thought out opinion. Even writing this episode and producing it, putting my thoughts out into the world as someone who literally does this work for a living who is required to challenge racist systems. Even all of that makes me incredibly uncomfortable because experience has only amplified for me that I'm not always safe to have an opinion that asks white people to do things differently in their attempts to solve for equity and inclusion in the workplace. People don't expect this soft-spoken, brown-skinned woman to have such disruptive opinions or think there is space or room to talk about my experiences publicly. I've been told I should watch how I say things and that I weaponize my ethnicity and race to create problems. That is all in my head. 
And it's interesting to me too, as a highly self-aware first-generation Canadian and children of immigrants who has literally found success in navigating corporate systems by being my most articulate self. Rarely do I feel what I say is irrational or not well thought out. Never does my character or integrity come into question. Yet what I've had to say in the past and even currently has made some people so uncomfortable to the point of threatening my livelihood. It's why this episode as a foundation is so needed to help you see how fragility only holds us all back from real change and how that fragility upholds an approach that won't move us beyond our performative checkbox exercises. And, you know, you may not be that anonymous person who tried to cancel me, but you may be on the defensive hearing what I have to say. And I ask that you sit with that to reflect how you can do the work to center voices like mine, and more importantly, the voices of Black and Indigenous women to find the right solutions. And when I've spoken to white allies in the past about the experiences of being a racialized woman, I explain it as some sort of hyper-awareness equivalent to that of a woman walking alone at night in a park. Constantly aware of our surroundings, our differences, and always on guard, ready to respond to the subtle and not-so-subtle attacks on the mere presence of us. We can't turn it off unless we're in the company of other racialized women, and our sense of safety comes from being in spaces and places where the color of our skin and our differences aren't anomalies, where we can take our armor off, breathe a sigh of relief, and trust that our differences won't be weaponized against us. That feeling is most amplified in the workplace, where we are often amongst blissfully ignorant peers and leaders who haven't had to live their lives being the other, and where toxicity and workplace trauma can run rampant. What underpins the entire conversation here is systemic racism, something I implore everyone listening to open their eyes to. You don't need to look too far to find the problem. And yes, even in Canada, the racial wealth gap, microaggressions, lack of representation in positions of influence, police brutality, healthcare inequities, how marginalized people are portrayed in the media, and so much more. Once you start to uncover how our systems are designed to uphold white supremacy, you really can't unsee it. And yes, everything does become about race because that's how our lives have been intentionally designed. We need you to do the work to understand this from a place of humility, from a place of active listening to hold back from looking for loopholes or giving the offender the benefit of the doubt. We need you to stop assuming good intentions and start challenging the moments that you let slide in favor of harmony and protecting your company agenda. We also need you to stop saying you're not political or attempting neutrality as a defense. Besides the obvious misnomer of existing in society being in and of itself a political act, to lean on apathy gives away your privilege in ways that 
further marginalizes equity-deserving groups. Neutrality isn't an option when people's lives and livelihoods are on the line, where so many of us have no choice in the experiences we are forced to deal with, where many of your marginalized coworkers, friends, and family carry the emotional weight of racist systems and people in the backs of their minds daily. As Desmond Tutu says, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And I've worked in environments in my past that have consistently put the needs of conservative, homophobic, racist team members front and center, who were too afraid to rock the boat when it really mattered to protect those that were marginalized in the spirit of freedom of speech. You know, I didn't stay very long to be further at the receiving end of more harm, and the experience will never leave me. I had enough privilege to choose to leave, but others are not so lucky. And if you decide to choose upholding freedom of speech over the safety of the marginalized people in your workplace, you are the oppressor. Lastly, you have to move beyond the idea of diversity of thought, which keeps many of your workplaces homogeneous and is often a comfort play to keep equity-deserving groups out. Beyond the fact that it's 2023 and we need to advance the conversation around what real diversity and inclusion look like in the workplace and beyond your good intentions to incorporate many diversions of di- dimensions of diversity into the equation of hiring or decision-making, Simply leaning on diversity of thought, particularly when your circles of influence within and outside the workplace are homogeneous, it really means that you are likely seeking something around culture fit. And it usually means you are seeking those that look like you, sound like you, and more than likely come from the same socioeconomic backgrounds as you. Not only are you perpetuating the problem, you are immensely limiting the brilliance and the expansive approach that can come from hiring someone from an equity-deserving group who, in addition to their qualifications, brings a unique depth of life experience that has come from having to cultivate resilience and navigate systems that are designed to see them fail. The capacity and the character in that alone is something that shouldn't be overlooked. And you can't get that if you limit your perspective to diversity of thought. Overall, allyship is an active process that requires you to rethink the privileges and opportunities that you've been afforded just by being born a white person. You may have intersections to your identity that limit your access, but the color of your skin has never been that and gives you unseen advantages that require a critical lens. Your comfort is not to be upheld when there are people dying because they have the audacity to exist in a world in an identity that they literally cannot change. I will leave you with the wise, wise words of Ijoma Aluo in her incredible and thought-provoking book, So You Want to Talk About Race, because I think this is the perfect way to end us off. She says that the possibilities of where you can leverage your privilege to make real, measurable change toward a better world are endless. Every day, you are given opportunities to make the world better, 
by making yourself a little uncomfortable and asking who doesn't have the same freedom or opportunity that I'm enjoying now. These daily interactions are how systems of oppression are maintained, but with awareness, they can be how we tear those systems down. So please check your privilege, check it often.